I cannot believe that you chose this to be Pastor Appreciation Sunday because I chose it to be God Appreciation Sunday, and it's going to work real well together, all right? I, I, really, think, I really think there's some synergy going on here that I did not expect. And uh, hopefully, uh, as appreciative as you said you were of me, that you'll be appreciating God even much more. Uh, and it, it's... Um, how do I say this? When when someone tries to verbally affirm me, I, I don't know if you're like this, but I am. I go, oh, please, no more. Please. Please, no more. I just can't. No, no. It's, I really didn't. So um, I really do appreciate it. And thank you so much. So what is it that's turned out better? Just in a, a couple words or so. Better than you expected. Let's hear it. Nothing. <laughs> Boy, am I on target today. Nothing? Yes. Your daughter's marriage. The guy is never good enough for your daughter, just so you know. And, and it turns out he's okay. He'll do. Okay. Anybody else? Some of you are scratching your noses. I'm going to call on you. Or your head. Pardon? Your work. That's right. You shared that with me. Just the big turnaround that has occurred. Anything else? If you would have looked at me in uh, when I was 17, I hate to say this, but that was 50 years ago, uh, and if you would have said, Jim, at this time, 50 years from now, you're going to be a minister in Evergreen, Colorado, and uh, <clears throat> more than that, you're going to have raised children, you will have married uh, a woman that is far better than you deserve, and and your children still want to spend time with you, I, I would have gone, yeah, right. <laughs> the reason that I say that for me is that uh, as I look at my life, and again, I'm at a place where many of you, of you are not. Many of you are saying, I, I'm in the middle of this right now that I'm facing, I'm in the middle of looking back and I'm really enjoying it. And so as I think of this, I, I, I would have to say, well, how come it's been so good? How come it is better than I expected? Well, I was born to be an accountant. Nothing wrong with being an accountant. Except my mother, okay, my mother caught me counting my money every day. And so she thought that's exactly what I'd be. Um, and, and the issue is not that this isn't what maybe something that God could have used in my life. But, but what happened is my whole view of wealth has changed and God has moved the goalpost. Do you, you understand that? I, I thought I was aiming for this and it would have been fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But God has moved the goalpost for me. And I am understanding that the good life that I am um, now experiencing would be a change of my metrics, uh, new categories in my life, new ways to define the good life that God has given me. And, and if you're not there yet, I just want to warn you, let God change your goalpost with his values and his vision for your life. Because that is what I think is happening to Joseph. Here's Joseph sitting in the palace of Pharaoh. And he can look back just a couple decades earlier and say, you know what? I was an ex-con. 
I was a prisoner. And I went through all of these hardships. And I must admit that what has happened to my life, as we've discovered it in Genesis 38 to 50, is that God has moved his goalposts. Genesis begins with creation and ends with the salvation and reconciliation of Joseph to his brothers, of God saving all of Egypt and God saving his family uh, from from, uh, extinction. So it goes through salvation and reconciliation. And as we get to the last few verses today, it ends with Joseph's expiration. He dies. But he looks at it as not at the end just of his life, but certainly not at the end of Israel. So from that jail cell, he has to look at a life that he never expected, where he would end up in Pharaoh's palace and be at Pharaoh's right hand. And, and as you read this, you have to understand that to let God move your goalposts, you've got to understand where human circumstances fit in. We live in the midst of human circumstances, but Genesis and Joseph's life is not just about circumstances. It's about God. And if we only look at the earthly circumstances, we'll miss what the story of Joseph is all about. Genesis is about God. It begins with his creation and his dealings with humanity. One person I've been reading who's been walking me through the life of Joseph says, in a way, now don't don't start throwing rocks at me or, or tomatoes. But in a way, he says, Genesis is about God learning to parent humanity. He creates them. And now he takes them through all these experiences. Now, look, there's limitations to what I just said. But I think you get it. He didn't deal with humans till he had humans. And then each generation... They bring their new sets of frailties, their new sins, uh, the blessings they need, the ways they need to rely on God. Each of them is tested in unique ways, and and God is learning to parent them. Um, And as kids, we're learning to trust our Heavenly Father. That's what Genesis is all about. So as we go through this, uh, and we we discover what Joseph is discovering. And and we understand that Joseph learned not in a classroom, but Joseph learned in life. And these are the things that Joseph has learned that we've done in these 14 lessons. God knows me. God is with me. God has plans for me. God is at work, and God is at work in me. You may not like this, but God tests me. Sometimes I have to wait on God. God rewards persevering trust in him. It's good to brag on God when you're blessed rather than brag on yourself. That we need to learn to put all of our adversity into the eternal perspective. God is sovereign. God is good. And, and, and you can count on the fact that eventual good will happen because God has promised it. That's why we call this series Intentions. And it really hinges around this, this one great verse of Genesis 50 where you see the intentions both divine and otherwise. You see, on the human side of intentions, the historical count is one of uh, broken people and broken relationships. And these are the people of God. These are Christians, as we would call them today. People of faith. Then 
there's the otherwise, and that's the otherwise. But when you look at the divine intentions, you see that God is building his people, protecting his people. He's accomplishing his will. He's demonstrating his caring love, not just for the Jews, but for all of humanity. So now we come to Genesis chapter 50. And we come to that point where we understand that it's time for one generation to move on, to go to be with God. And then it's time for the next generation to go to be with God, all in one chapter. So it begins to hinge around Jacob, the father of this messy clan of of about 70 people. Uh, He dies after bearing 12 sons. He dies at the age of 147. The life of these 12 sons is pretty much a mess. But he commands his son to return his remains to Canaan. It is the land where his father Isaac and his, and his grandfather Abram and their wives were buried in a certain cave. So they have a, a season of mourning, both the Jews and all of Egypt, was, which is a rare honor that Egypt uh, honors non-Egyptians. Uh, but that is the promise that Jacob requests and his sons, uh, of his sons, and that is the promise that his sons keep with Pharaoh's blessing. So God keeps his promises, and it looks good when his people keep their promises. So there's the promise kept, and that's how it ends. So Jacob's sons did what he commanded or requested of them, and they carried his remains off to Canaan. Now, when that is over, there is a wide opening here. And if you understand human nature, it should make a lot of sense to you. What do I mean? Uh, we reach that point now where the, um, the head of the clan, the, the progenitor, uh, the patriarch dies. And if you've ever been in a, um, a dysfunctional family where there is a death of a mom and dad, sometimes it'll look like the, you know, all the kids and all the relatives come together like, I'm sorry, vultures on a carcass. And I've seen that happen from time to time. And because this family is so dysfunctional, there is something that seems to be unsolved still among them. And the unsolved issue is what they, ten brothers of the twelve, did to Joseph, number eleven of the twelve. And so there is a guilt going on here once they return. Joseph is in his palace. That's like being in Washington, D.C. And his brothers, well, they're in Oklahoma looking after the flocks. There's a big distance. It's flyover country. Joseph doesn't spend a lot of time there. He doesn't go and meet with his brothers. He's busy running a country. He's prime minister. So as he's running the country and not having all that much free time to go see his brothers, his brothers now think, is this the time when our brother Joseph will get even with us? After decades of peaceful coexistence, Will Joseph now seek his revenge because we sold him into slavery? Now, slavery wasn't that bad. We wanted to kill him. So we were so gracious. We only made him a slave. So understand that um, what has happened is Joseph then responds, no. I mean, his answer is going to be no because God has moved his goalpost in life. His brother's goalposts, however, remain the same. They're in the same place they were 40 years ago. Uh, they're in the same place as the day they sold him into slavery. So you've got to ask at this point, 
Any guilt that you're carrying around that you really have not dealt with in your life? Can you think of things going on that are sort of shaping the way you approach people or, or certain people? Do you have trouble looking certain people in the eye because you know you've wronged them? You're walking around with what I call a shriveled heart. Believing that as you look at people, there's some ways in which you've done them harm. And you've done nothing about it. You know, the problem, at least one of the problems is, if you don't know how to deal with it, you don't really know the heart of God. See, God is both just and forgiving. Yes, you may pay a penalty, but he is forgiving. And he wants you to know his forgiveness. And you may also need to seek somebody out that you have wronged and seek this this person's forgiveness too. But on the other side, you're carrying around grudges. That's what they were afraid of for Joseph. Because you have not moved your goalpost or you afraid that others have grudges against you or you're carrying around grudges. How do you deal with that? All I can say is, is if you're carrying around a grudge and not guilt, you're walking around pretty much the same way. Grudges consume you. They keep you up at night. So whether it's a long-term guilt or long-term grudges, you don't know God's peace until you've gone to him and you've gone to those that either have offended you or you have offended. Well, now comes this great moment. This great moment when they say, "Uh uh-oh, this is the perfect time for Joseph to get back at us and to get even. So the brothers, they send a a request. You, You might say a letter. They don't come themselves. They send a message or a messenger. Why don't they come themselves? Guilt. Fear. So this, I'm going to sort of summarize what, what that request might have been. Dear favorite son Joseph, my last wish before I die is that you not hold your brothers responsible for their sins against you. Please forgive them and do not seek revenge against them. Love, your brother's dad. (laughs) Joseph reads this and he understands immediately. The first thing that happens, dad never said that. It's fraud. They lied again. He can see it right away. The second thing is he realizes that after all this time, they still feel that Joseph is going to get him. And so, rightfully so, what does Joseph do? He weeps. He weeps at their deceit. He weeps at their fear. He weeps at their guilt. And he calls them together. I can imagine, (laughs) you know, soldiers show up and says, Pharaoh's right-hand man wants to see you now. So I, I, I don't know if they showed up fear and trembling because Joseph hasn't told them what he's going to do. But as they come... You know, they they come to the palace. It says they bow down before Joseph. That's God's dream fulfilled from chapter 38. They submit themselves to him as, as his slaves. That's not God's dream. 
They're to submit to him. They're to bow down and depend upon him. He's going to be the uh, uh, the most influential to keep the family uh, line going. But they're they're not to be his slaves. And then he gives, Joseph tells them, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? You see, here's what is going on here. God blesses and God judges. Joseph sees himself as God's servant, but he's not God. Joseph does not try to play God with them. And, and so he says, guys, you got to move your goalpost here. You got to let God's values seep into your life and live accordingly. Now comes some of the most important words of the Bible. As I look at Genesis, I, you know, and I, I read it at least once a year. As I look at Genesis, there's three key portions to it. I want to share one at the beginning and one at the end. And there's another great one in the middle. But the most important words of this book of Genesis, I think, start at the beginning. And where it begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator of the universe. God is created a, a creator of this planet. God is the creator of humanity. Now that book ends with these words. Joseph is looking at his brothers saying, am I in the place of God that I'm going to take revenge on you? And then he says the truth with grace. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, saving many lives. Uh, One of the translations that I use a lot just puts it very simply. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. So he, he begins to focus on the goodness of God's nature and the goodness of God's plan. And as for Joseph, he, you know, the evil that he endures, what comes out of it? What comes out of it is that he has a solid trust in good, in God and the good that comes from God to him. Philip Yancey is one of the uh, uh, Christian authors here in this community. He's written many good books, and he comes from a very um, restrictive Christian background. I, I would call it almost abusive. And uh, as he grew up from that, he had to begin to think for himself. And he read Genesis time and time and time again because this is where it begins. And, and he's trying to sort through what is it about Joseph that we need to learn, not about how we operate, but how God operates. And this is what he says. Through all of his trials, Joseph learns to trust. Number one, Joseph learns to trust. Not that God would prevent hardship. God doesn't prevent hardships in our lives. But that he would redeem the hardships. You get the difference. Through all his trials, Joseph learns to trust, not that God would prevent hardship, but that he would redeem the hardship. God has taken those hardships, betrayal, slavery, false accusations, negligence, prison, and he's redeemed them. How did he redeem them? He raised Joseph up to save the entire extended family of Israel and the entire nation of Egypt. Both are saved from extinction. And so even though Joseph's brothers intend evil, God intends good. Guess who wins? Not sometimes. Guess who wins? Ultimately, 
And though we may not see the whole, you know, how it all works out, he wins every time. God always wins. His plan is accomplished. His sovereignty is displayed. And Joseph is rewarded for his trust uh, that is perfected through adversity. Now, I'm not one who's saying, you you know, you got a lemon, make lemonade. I'm saying you got a lemon, give it to God. He makes better lemonade. And watch yourself be perfected through this. So once this faith of Joseph is perfected and it sort of slops over on his brothers where they realize Joseph is not going to go after us. Instead, he looks at God as, as taking the evil that we've done to him and using it for good. Now Joseph himself comes to the end of his life in verse 24. He's now about 110 years old. And he says to his brothers, I am about to die. But you will, but God will surely come to your aid. The word there is visit in, in the Hebrew, which we need to look at. And take you up out of this land to the, uh, to the land promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob now has been dead for decades. So when you look at that again, who made the promise? That they would be taken up. God made the promise. And God will work it for good. So now he's 110 years old. The Jews are multiplying. The Egyptians can't stop him. And they're multiplying in Egypt at an astounding rate. And, and he calls the family heads together. Most of his brothers have probably passed on. And he's telling them something that we all need to hear. He's saying that uh, when he dies, God is still with the nation of Israel. When Joseph was in Egypt, God was with him. It says that eight times. Now, as Joseph passes on, God doesn't disappear. He is with the nation of Israel. And then it says God will save them as he's done with Joseph. Now he will save them again. God will visit them again. And the next time he visits them is about 400 years in the future. Like Joseph, the whole nation will be slaves. To a Pharaoh who knows nothing of Joseph. By that time, the Jews will, will number in the millions. And God will visit them and take them back to Canaan to the land promised to great granddaddy Abraham. Now, understand this. In our current political climate, I realize that we're looking at um, sort of nation against nation. And what are we going to do with Israel? I mean, they're just a, really a pain in the neck aren't they? And, 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 and there's all sorts, you know, Iran wants to do this, Iraq wants to do that, Germany wants to do, it, it's just a mess. Who wins? God. What has God said? God has said, and he has fulfilled his promise, and he will continue. God says two things. You're going to have more descendants than you can count. Number one. Secondly, you're going to have the land of Canaan. Now, we can go around measuring it and say, well, this is Canaan and this is not Canaan, and I understand that, and and that's probably what we're doing right now. But God says you're going to have descendants and you're going to have a land. Who wins? God wins. And he will continue to win. But man, is it tough right now, isn't it? And, you know, I was born in 1948. The next year, the Jews moved into, you know, back to Canaan. It's been a mess my whole lifetime. 
I don't know when it's going to end, but I know who wins. And more than just promising a land and descendants too numerous to number, God's promise continues until God is done with planet Earth and humanity. And not only does it continue, but God expands his promise to us. Friends, this is where it gets real good. Where God moves his goalpost not just to save Egypt, but to save the whole world. God stuns Zechariah into silence in the temple that, as the angel tells him, God's time has come to send Elijah as the forerunner and then to send the Messiah himself in those days. And, and when Zechariah's voice returns at, at the birth of his son, John the baptizer, who is the Elijah who's promised, Zechariah lets out a praise and he says this in Luke 168. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come. The word is, because he has visited us. He has visited us and redeemed his people. Isn't that amazing? So the, the, the next visitation of God would be to save the whole world and to save the whole world through Christ Jesus. This is how he is visiting us. But it gets even better. In, and as John writes, he tells of God's Messiah who came to us not as a visitor. He didn't just visit us. But he came as a full-time resident and a full-fledged citizen. Now, those of you who've moved to the mountains in the last three years, aren't you amazed at how many people want to come and visit you? Isn't it just, when's the last time we saw these people? Well, you know, 45 years ago. Well, how'd they find out about us? I've got to get off Facebook, you know. i just got to stop this stuff. Uh, They hunt you down. They want to be with you in the mountains. Especially summer and winter and springtime and heart. No, uh, they want to be there in those hours. <coughs> so uh, they want to enjoy the recreational possibilities that the mountains have that they don't have in Texas or other places. So they come. Now, as they come as visitors, what's a good stay? My sister had a, something right over her kitchen sink. And a little sign, and it said, God, no, sorry, fish and visitors both smell after three days. Now, some of you had people stay for weeks or months or whatever, and that's, that's fine. I don't know what they're smelling, but they're still called visitors, aren't they? And they're not staying forever, are they? We don't think so. And, and, and none of them has come and said, you know, we like this place so much, we'd just like to move in with you. None of them have done that, have they? No. So here's what's going on. With Jesus Christ, you now have a full-time resident, a full-fledged citizen. God has visited us, but he's visited us in such a way that he has pitched his tent or made his dwelling among men. The word is tabernacle, not the same as a visit, even better, longer lasting, uh, 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 a greater and deeper meaning than visit. And this is what we should be experiencing in our life with Christ. And as as Jesus comes, John uses these two words. Jesus comes full of grace and truth. And whenever we look at how Jesus talks, what he does, it is never untruthful and is never ungraceful. Because that's his nature. And Joseph knows the truth about his brothers. 
And he decides to show them grace. God knows the truth about us. But he sends us his grace in Jesus. Around here, we have a diagram that we're trying to perfect. We're working on it. It's going to be changing a lot. We show these three little uh, circles that sort of get together. And, 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 and here's the idea. Can we? Does that come up? It was supposed to be inserted. If not, I will try to act them out. There we go. Okay. We've added a better background. We're going to get a title. It's just coming together, folks. So this tells us how God transforms us to be more like Jesus, more full of grace and truth. Now, when you look at this diagram, you have to understand that Joseph is, is a minor miracle. What head knowledge did he have of God? What classes did he attend? What notebooks did he finish? What online courses did he accomplish? He has very little head knowledge. And by the way, his, he wouldn't even be written about until Moses did it 400 years later. Joseph doesn't even know he's famous. <laughs> Secondly, he had no believing friends. He had no Christian friends. None. And the brothers he had were a terrible example. But in his heart, head and heart, even though his head didn't have much knowledge in it, his heart, he trusted God, and that trust was unwavering. And that trust led to the activities of his life where he decided to obey God in every adverse circumstance. And believe me, he had a lot of them, a lot more than me. Do you understand that God has given us more and a better foundation than Joseph could ever dream of? Do you understand that the resources that are available to us, Joseph could never have imagined? We are surrounded with head knowledge. We can go online, take our own classes, do self-study. We have our growth groups. We can order books either digitally or still kill a tree to get them. We, we uh, More than that, we're surrounded by Christians here. Uh, many of whom are great examples if you take the time to get to know them. And the opportunities that we have to do good works, both here in the church and the world, are probably more than we can count. God has surrounded us with opportunities and resources. So when we are faced with adversity or even evil, we have a certainty that God is with us like he was with Joseph. I want to take you to the, the next diagram, because this is what I want you to leave with in this whole study. Um, you, up there, you can say it's evil or adversity. You know, I want you to think of three columns. It, one is the evil or the adverse circumstances that you may be facing. Okay? Whatever they may be. Whatever they may be. We have some short-term, we have some long-term. It might go back to grudges and guilt even. Whatever those adverse circumstances are, the easy thing is to dwell upon them and say, man, how am I, I'm a problem solver, how am I going to solve this? The second column that I want you to see right in the middle is God. In other words, what is the nature of God like? What is God showing me about himself that I should take to heart? Let's say, for example, you've lost a job. Or for those of you who are youth, you've lost a friend at school. 
your, your best friend. What is it that God wants to do where I, you know, where, where I understand by his nature, he is at work and he is good. And then finally, what is the good thing that you are seeing back in this third column? What is the good thing you're seeing God do? Now, I'm not going to do a short-term thing for you. I'm going to go back to the 50 years of God changing his goalpost for me. As I said, what I wanted was enough money to do everything my dad said we can't afford. And I figured the best way to do that was to be a brain surgeon, a rocket scientist, or a business student. Guess which I chose. Okay? Uh, when, when, when they say, you know, you're not in the 99 percentile, you're somewhat lower, then choose something else. Because you'll be frustrated otherwise. And, and, and probably turned down. So, you know, at the age of 17, still counting my money every day, I, I, I must admit that I said, here's how I can do it. And even as a young Christian, I developed a, a scheme for a, for, for a um, um, you might call a church services corporation that would do things for churches that they were really terrible at doing for, the, for themselves. And in my mind was, I'm serving God, but man, am I going to get rich. <laughs> no, honest. Still as a young Christian. As you grow more in Christ-likeness, one of the things you're going to have to learn to say is Jehovah Jireh, God provides. Jehovah Jireh, God provides. And I'm learning that again and again. More than that, God is wise. And he knows what's best for me. He knows my character and what he wants to shape me into long before I have a clue. Now, I'm talking 50 years here. Okay? So I'm not expecting you to be able to say this or even me to say I I do it daily. But friends, I didn't know what rich was. I mean that. I didn't know. I just thought it was money. I didn't know what wealth was. I count my wealth in terms of the many blessings that God has given me. Three grown children that say, when can I come home? Not to stay, but when can I come home? A wife that says, you'll do. Um, relationships that span the world. Um, a training that I realize that people are hungry for in many places in the world as well as here. I didn't know what rich was. Do you? Is God moving your goalpost? Let's pray. Father, we all have adversity, and I pray for those who are feeling it, who are actually saying, this is as hard as it gets, and I don't know how it could get any harder. And not just me, but 
just the, the prayers of this congregation go up. And I pray that in each adverse circumstance we face, that we can claim by faith that God is with me. As he was with Joseph, God is with me. And we don't know how this ends. But no matter how it turns out, God is with me in Christ Jesus. Full of grace and truth. Full-fledged, long-term, eternal visitor. And we place our trust right now in him. And in him alone. And God's people said, Amen.